Hey, gorgeous lady. How are you? Hi, lady. I'm fucking amazing. How the fuck are you? I got to see you this week, live and in person, twice. Twice. So I'm fucking doing great. Fantastic. What more could I have asked for? I mean, same. Thank you guys so much for being so lovely and accommodating with our unexpected re-release. Just so you know, I'm working 20 days in a row and seven of those days are 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. days. So Amy was very, when I was like, hey, we can record in the four hours that I have available to sleep. And Amy was like, you should sleep. You should sleep. Correct. So we pushed the episode a week. Thank you guys for being rad as fuck and so understanding as you always are. We're completely obsessed with you. But uh, what have you been up to other than working? And the U.S. Open. Work. <laughs> Working the Open. I got to see you there, which was wonderful. It's very funny because we are so close to each other. Yeah, we didn't realize. We worked for like two days next to each other. Several days. Yeah. Yeah. And then we realized we were like basically next door neighbors and less than like a two minute walk, maybe at most. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And we were just existing near one another simultaneously in our little bubbles, but not actually working together. And then you drove me to, to Smashing Pumpkins and Interpol? I did. I did drive you there. First, because I am really bad at geography, apparently, and I thought it was on the way. But then even when I found out it wasn't, I didn't give a fuck because I wanted to spend time with you in the car. So Because Amy's amazing and I don't deserve her, truly. You got... <laughs> Stop it. It's true. I don't deserve you. Monique got to experience my nervous driving. I thought it was fine. I've been in the car with you before. Have you? Yeah. There were a couple times you you drove me places when we first met like three years ago. Okay. That makes sense. I may have hit a speed bump way too hard. Oh, well, yeah. That's fine. We went for a little ride. We went for a little bouncy ride. It wasn't ride. a pedestrian, so it was great. You know, it was, oh it was my fine. God. Wait. <laughs> knock on wood. You know that's like a very real fear of mine, right? <laughs> I didn't. Don't even joke about that, Moni. I didn't, but uh, you didn't. So you're nailing it. You're batting a thousand. Uh, I got you there safely. I made it home safely. Yep. And you got to meet Sam and Andrew. I did get to meet Sam and Andrew. I was just going to bring that up. They were so nice. They're so wonderful. Yes. I was like, hello. Thank you so much for coming out and letting me chat your ear off and had such a wonderful time. We all got drinks in the city. Donna came. Yeah. Her friend Edward. It was a merry party. I know. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, I was definitely like passing the fuck out at dinner and definitely in in the car on the way home because I'd, <laughs> I'd slept, I think, a collective of like 10 hours in three days, something like that. Ooh. Yeah. Good times. That's not good. No. Suboptimal. Been there. Mm-hmm. But you made it and you looked gorgeous doing it. Thank you. I'm surprised at, at how good I looked realistically because I, I didn't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> Makeup is a miracle sometimes. I have been there. Girl, absolutely. Yes. Thank God for Sephora. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's like saving us one tired face at a time. Appreciate it. For sure. It was it was one of those things that like a couple days ago, I have this this strict rule that if three things go wrong before 11 a.m., just go back to bed because that's just what your day is going to be. And this one day absolutely was that. And the day started at 6 a.m. I was up and like, you know, putting on my face and I accidentally knocked my foundation, my very expensive foundation over. And like I've dropped my foundation a billion times, but this time it just full on fucking shattered. And I'm no. like, 
cool. I hate that. And the thing is, I'm working 6 a.m. I'm like unavailable from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. So I can't actually like go to Sephora and get another foundation like in several days for like five days. So like I had to like <laughs> rush expedite ship. So I had to do like a like a next day delivery type of thing. But in the meantime, I'm like in the so I <laughs> literally scooped up foundation <gasps> from the fucking floor and put it on my fucking face. So that I could look presentable for this fucking VIP suite that I'm like heading. Oh my God, I love you. I No judgments. I would have done the exact same thing. I'd be like, this is way too expensive. No. It was like $64 a bottle, some type of shit. And it was like, it was like two thirds full. It's fucking devastating. Uh. Uh. And I was like, I literally don't have another option because even like, I can't even get like something like from a drugstore because the drugstore, like, like a CVS or a Dwayne Reed is not fucking open right now. Yeah. Literally, I'm reduced to scooping up foundation and picking out shards of glass from it and putting it on my fucking face. Okay, wait. I didn't think about that part. That was so dangerous. Oh, yeah, girl. <laughs> Tired. At six in the morning, going on like three, three and a half hours of sleep. So I'm like, I might end up in the emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things we do for beauty. And money, girl, let's be real. Um, that's where I'm coming from emotionally. But I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to see your gorgeous face again. I'm so happy to be talking some wild shit. Oh my God, me fucking too. I feel like my cup runneth over because I've gotten to see you so much. This has been really a lovely week. And the cherry on top, again, was Sam and Andrew. Like, oh, they're so wonderful. They're so wonderful. We have to go visit them in Chicago. Yes, yes. We're making it happen. yes. It's happening. As I said in the spring, though, because it's very In the cold. spring. Unless, like, <laughs> unless the, the, the temperatures there are fucking terrible, like, and it's just going to be hot for a very long time, like it is here, then we can go into the fall. I was like, I'm fine with that. We can make that work. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll figure it out. But no, it's Sam, Andrew, notarize that shit. It's official. We're doing it. It's, it's on record now. Yeah. You can play this episode back and be like, bitch, you said you were coming to Chicago. Like, book your flight. That's right. I am a woman of my word. It might take me a bit, but dollars to donuts. That you are. I'm, you know, I'll make that shit happen. Now you got me wanting donuts. Don't <laughs> they opened a Krispy Kreme. Not too, <gasps> girl. girl. Stop it. And you know, and like a Krispy Kreme, I realized why I like it because it tastes like a funnel cake. Oh my God. Yeah. Hot Krispy Kreme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There used to be one by the movie theater we would go to in high school and... Every time we came out of a movie, the hot sign was on and we would go get a Krispy Kreme donut. Yes. And I can remember proudly telling people I just wanted to be run under the hot glaze machine. Like, that was my dream. <laughs> I just wanted all of the glaze. It's so good. When people are like, what's your fantasy? <laughs> you know the hot glaze machine? Do you work for Krispy Kreme? Sounds very inappropriate. Now that I'm like picturing it as an adult. <laughs> So inappropriate, but so delicious. I stand by my statement. Absolutely. I support it wholeheartedly. All right, girl. Anything else? No, that's kind of my big exciting week. I mean, same. I don't even barely know what day it is, but I'm here. You're here. I'm so excited. And you look gorgeous. Thank you. So do you. I'm happy you're here. I'm so happy I'm here. I love all this, obviously, which is why why we do it every week. (laughs) I'm also a little delirious, so bear with me. But hence, hence the tangent. But enough bullshit. Do you have any any spookies? I it's not really spooky, but I do have a paranormal story for you this week. I love it. Let's do it. 
I kind of have multiple paranormal stories for you this week because that's how this that's how this is going to go. I'm dancing. I'm so excited. She, it's her get, dance is really cute for the record. <laughs> I love <Thank> it. <laughs> Arms up. There's a lot of waving. It's amazing. This is not a lot of waving and boob shaking. <laughs> that's why I loved it, Monique. <laughs> I'm here for the boob shaking. I don't know that I'm really going rogue with this one, but I kind of felt like I was. So I love it. I love everything about it. Rogue One. Let's go. (laughs) So today I'm going to tell you about the third man syndrome. Sources, Deseret.com, NPR, The Guardian, CNN, The Toronto Star, Australian Geographic, Reader's Digest, USA Today, and Wikipedia. Third man syndrome, also known as the third man factor, is a phenomenon experienced by people usually during extreme survival situations. And it's basically when a quote-unquote presence intervenes at a critical moment to offer encouragement, guidance, or support. I love everything about this. I didn't know this was a syndrome. I love everything about this. Oh my God. It like warmed my heart so much. It was, it's so fascinating to me now. And I like, I'm so intrigued. I love this. So, obviously, this is what many people believe to be a guardian angel of sorts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous instances of the phenomenon took place in 1916 during Ernest Shackleton's disastrous Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. And it was Shackleton's account of his experience that served as the inspiration for the term the third man. Now, most of the articles I read glossed over 90% of what happened to the crew on the expedition and just mentioned that the phenomenon happened to Shackleton and a few of his men during a grueling 36-hour trek to a whaling station to get help for the men they'd left behind. But I have to give you the Cliff Notes version of this story because it's absolutely fucking insane. So Shackleton and his 27-man crew set out for Antarctica in their ship Endurance. Five weeks later, the ship gets stuck in ice. They drift with the ice for seven months, spring arrives, the ice starts breaking up and moving and putting pressure on the ship and eventually breaches the hull. They grab all the supplies and abandon ship. The ship eventually sinks. The men take three lifeboats and the sled dogs and try to make it on foot over the ice. They realize it's impassable and set up camp for three and a half months. At this point, they're basically just surviving on seal meat. They couldn't keep feeding the dogs though, so... They eventually killed them and ate them too. After three and a half months, the ice flow they were on broke into two, so they immediately jumped in the lifeboats. After five extremely difficult days at sea, the men finally landed on Elephant Island, which was the first time they had been on land in 497 days. No. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. Yes. No, thank you. In the Antarctic, like freezing your balls off the entire fucking time. Mm -mm. However, Elephant Island was remote, uninhabited, and rarely visited by whalers or any other ships, and Shackleton knew there was no chance that a relief expedition would find them. So he decided to leave the majority of his men behind, fortify one of the lifeboats, and attempt a 720 nautical mile journey to the South Georgia whaling stations, where he knew help was available. In case you were wondering, a nautical mile is just slightly longer than a standard mile. Why just a mile a mile? It's because of the curvature of the earth, something. Yeah. Okay, cool. The more you know. That's probably wrong. And there's some (laughs) seafaring fan of ours who's yelling at me right now. Well, actually. It has, yeah, something to do with the longitude of the earth. Oh, I mean, that makes sense. They sailed for 17 days and were in constant danger of capsizing. 
As if that wasn't enough, when they finally saw the coast of South Georgia, hurricane-force winds prevented them from landing, and they were forced to ride out the storm in constant danger of being smashed against the rocks. They later learned that the same hurricane had sunk a 500-ton steamer elsewhere. Meanwhile, they're in, like, a dinky little lifeboat that, like, threw some extra wood on. Holy shit. Insane. But against all odds, they fucking made it to shore. However, Shackleton knew the whaling stations where help was available were on the northern coast, and to reach them, they'd have to either sail around the island or cross on land. And since the boat and two of his crew were in no shape to make the journey, he decided to take the two more able-bodied men and make the trek across the island. The journey was grueling, to say the least. Shackleton and his two companions, Tom Crean and Frank Worsley, hiked across extremely dangerous mountainous terrain for 36 hours straight with no sleep, which feels like you're weak, I'm sure. You're like, that's what I did. Thank you. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. <laughs> they were forced to backtrack several times and at one point even risked their lives sliding down a mountainside on a makeshift rope sled. But it was all worth it in the end, and the three men eventually made it to the whaling station and sent rescue teams out for the men they'd left behind. After three failed attempts, they finally succeeded, and all 22 of the other crew members were saved after four and a half months of waiting for rescue efforts. Which means, despite all of this insane shit that happened, every single one of the men survived, which I actually can't believe. No. That's incredible. Blown away. Yeah. This guy. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean largely credit their survival on their harrowing 36-hour trek to a fourth traveler. It was a presence all three men felt, one that provided them with hope and direction, but that was never really there at all. I love this so fucking much. I love this so fucking much. I can't actually handle it. I know. The hands are in the air. My eyes are closed. (laughs) I'm so happy in this moment. I love this. I'm glad. I figured this would be much more uplifting than a literally anything else. Traumatizing, spooky story. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Where I'm like, then they saw some crazy demonic shit. Good luck with the rest of your week, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm obsessed with you. (laughs) I'm obsessed with you. In Shackleton's book about the expedition, he said, quote, I know that during that long and raking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three, end quote. Worsley also reported there being a fourth person accompanying them. According to the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, he said, quote, There was indeed one thing about our crossing of South Georgia, a thing which I have never been able to explain. When I reviewed the incidents of that march, I had the subconscious feeling that there were four of us instead of three, end quote. Now, after reading Shackleton's account of a mysterious fourth man, poet T.S. Eliot took a little artistic license with the idea, turned Shackleton's fourth man into a third, and included it in his famous poem, The Wasteland. And it's here that the phenomenon got its name. John Geiger, a senior fellow at the University of Toronto and governor of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, who's written several books about exploration, also became fascinated by Shackleton's otherworldly guardian and began compiling accounts of others who had experienced the third man syndrome, which he eventually published in his book called The Third Man Factor, Surviving the Impossible. He discovered a wide range of third man stories that all involved a strong impression of a felt presence, sometimes with a voice or a shadow-like image, but often without a clear form. 
Charles Lindbergh felt it during his first solo nonstop transatlantic flight in 1927. He got very little sleep the night before, and nine hours after takeoff was desperately struggling to stay awake. 22 hours into the trip, Lindbergh suddenly felt that he was not alone and said that he sensed human figures in the plane with him. Quote, ghostly presences, vaguely outlined forms, transparent, moving, riding weightless with me in the plane, end quote. They were behind him, and he said they came forward to speak above the noise of the engine. They gave him advice about the flight and navigation and offered him reassurance. Lindbergh said he found them comforting and that they faded away as soon as he spotted the Irish coast. For nearly 30 years, Lindbergh kept them a secret until he wrote The Spirit of the St. Louis, his Pulitzer Prize-winning book in 1953. Which, in doing research for the story, I just have to throw in this fun fact. Apparently, this plane did not have a windshield, a fuel gauge, or a radio in it. Which, wild. Yeah, they literally would throw a tin can up there, and it was just, like, glued together. And it's like, you went up there with, like, glue and a fucking prayer, basically. Yeah. Like, he was literally riding in, like, a wicker lawn chair because the original chair was too heavy. So he was like, let's just fucking throw it in there. It's fine. And, like, again, there's no windshield. He has to stick his head out of the fucking window of the plane to see where the fuck that he's going. I didn't even know that was any any plane was designed that way. I looked at pictures because I was like, how? How? I physically don't understand how. And then you see it and you're like, oh, that is wild. Wild. Sorry, fun fact that I could knock it over when I'm doing the story and I had no idea. I mean, I always assumed that every plane had a windshield, but clearly I was mistaken. Because you should probably see where you're going? Yes, correct. I mean, no. Yeah. Yeah. The little things like that. Apparently not. Just hang your head out the window, you're good. <laughs> Hope a bird doesn't hit you in the face. I mean, girl. My nightmare. <laughs> oh, man. On September 11, 2001, Ron Francisco was on the 84th floor of the South Tower at the World Trade Center. When the second plane crashed into the building, he made several attempts to escape, but failed to find a safe exit. On the brink of giving up, Ron heard an unfamiliar voice telling him to get up. He said the voice was male, but did not belong to one of the people in the stairwell. It addressed him by his first name and gave him encouragement, but Ron said it was more than a voice. There was also a vivid sense of a physical presence. The presence led him to the stairs. He said, quote, I don't think something grabbed my hand, but I was definitely led, end quote. When he encountered a fire blocking his path, it led him through the flames. As Ron raced down to the plaza, the tower collapsed. He was one of only four people to escape from above the 81st floor and credits what he described as a quote-unquote angel as the sole reason he made it out of the South Tower alive. Holy shit. So, okay, just clarification for my brain. So, are they really physically seeing these people, these, this, this fourth third man, whatever? Or is it just like a feeling? It's like maybe a shadowy figure at most, mm-hmm. but it is more a presence and generally a voice. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. But no, no one, none of the accounts I read saw anything physical. I see. Okay. Got it. In April, 1983, while ice climbing in the Canadian Rockies, 28-year-old mountaineer James Savoy and Richard Whitmire were overcome by an avalanche, which swept them nearly 2,000 feet. When James regained consciousness, he realized he was severely injured. His back was broken in two places. He had a fractured arm, cracked ribs, severed nerves, torn ligaments in his knees, broken teeth, and internal bleeding. Oh my God. I know. He said, quote unquote, blood was everywhere. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, and you're in the snow, like, oh, that's got to be so traumatic. Mm -hmm. 
I, what the fuck is that movie? It traumatized me so much as a kid, and now I can't remember what the fuck its name was. <laughs> Give me something. Oh my god, they push the heart through the snow because they get trapped underneath it. What the fuck? I think I missed this one. Oh my god. Yeah, I feel like it's like limit something. When he saw that his climbing partner was dead, James gave up any hope that he might survive and just curled up in the snow to die. But as he resigned himself to his fate, he felt someone behind him and heard a voice telling him not to give up. He said, quote, it was something I couldn't see, but it was a physical presence, end quote. James said the voice reminded him of a woman. It was warm and nurturing, and it gave practical advice, telling him to get his jacket on and to get water. It even told him to arrange the blood dripping from his body in the shape of arrows pointing the direction he was walking in case rescuers came up on his trail. Oh, my God. Right? That is clutch as fuck. I mean, I, that definitely would not cross my mind. Seriously. I'd be like, I'm fucking dying and I'm fucked and this is how this goes down. That sucks. Yeah. That's the only thing in my, on my brain. I would probably be like, no, I'm just let me go to sleep. I'm fine. Thank you. James said, quote, I didn't question it. I didn't think about it. I did exactly what the voice said, end quote. The presence, which he said stood behind his right shoulder, was with him for his entire journey, urging him to continue every time he felt like giving up. Although the voice had no physical form, he said he could feel that someone was there. Quote, it was like I would sneak up to you and put my nose a quarter of an inch from your neck. It was that kind of physical sensation, end quote. The presence led him all the way back to base camp, where James saw three people skiing nearby and called for help. As soon as he called out for them, the presence immediately vanished, and James said he was suddenly overcome with loneliness. For two years afterward, he couldn't talk about what had happened. Quote, it made me cry. It was so powerful. I just couldn't tell many people. If it wasn't for the third man, I would be dead. End quote. Although he says the mysterious presence was the only reason he got off that mountain alive, he also says he doesn't believe it was God or a guardian angel. Many other mountaineers have reported encounters with the so-called third man, and in fact, it seems to be fairly common among the profession. British explorer Frank Smith reported a similar experience when he attempted to climb Mount Everest in 1933. The ascent was grueling and nearly disastrous. Although his entire hiking party had fallen back and he continued on alone, he said, quote, All the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. The feeling was so strong that it completely eliminated all loneliness I might otherwise have felt, end quote. The feeling of another person was so visceral that at one point he reached into his pocket, pulled out a slab of Kendall mint cake, broke it in half, and turned around to give the other half to his companion. But obviously there was no one there. These are just a few of the more than 100 cases of third man syndrome John Geiger found in the six years he spent researching survival stories for his book. Adventurers, sailors, pilots, scuba divers, prisoners of war, and even a NASA astronaut have all reported encountering some sort of presence during high periods of stress. Geiger said that in every case he found, it was always a benevolent, helpful companion, and that there was not a single example of a malevolent being. Most who experienced it said they could tell the being's gender, and although most of them described it as an unfamiliar presence, there were a few cases where it was reported that it was a deceased friend or relative. Now, many people obviously believe these reports of the quote-unquote third man are some form of a guardian angel. Ron Francisco, who survived the attack on the Twin Towers, said, quote, It was a higher being rather than an internal being. Maybe it was an angel. I didn't see the face of God, but I know somebody came and helped me, end quote. Geiger himself said, quote, 
Clearly, there's a spiritual or religious explanation to this phenomenon, end quote, but also said there is strong science behind the third man phenomenon. Oh. We'll get it. We'll get okay. into it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Although scientific researchers have studied how the human mind might conjure the third man and explanations range from biochemical reactions to misfiring brain activity, there's still no definitive explanation and opinion is divided. Felt presences are common in certain neurological disorders, such as Parkinson's disease, as well as cases of brain damage. In the case of Parkinson's, they appear to occur most often in people who receive high-dose medication, which suggests that it's possible that the neurotransmitter dopamine may be involved in these third-man experiences. People with brain injuries who reported felt presences often have damage to an area called the, pardon my pronunciation, this was a very long word, and... My mouth is not working right now, apparently. <laughs> Temporoparietal junction, or TPJ. And studies have shown that the feeling of a nearby sensed presence can be induced by electrical stimulation of this area. The TPJ also appears to play an important role in maintaining an internal representation of our body image. So one possibility is that feelings of a presence occur when our representation of our body is somehow duplicated or projected outside of us something known as autoscopic experience. However, it should be noted that even when the feeling of a presence was induced, the subjects did not report that the presence had the sort of active, benevolent, and intelligent presence that the others often cited during their third man encounters. Whether that's a result of them not being in like a high-stress survival situation or not is undetermined. They also mention sleep paralysis Sure. when they're kind of going over the explanation for this, because obviously that's a very common occurrence where people feel a presence. So yes, but I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that because every time I've heard of sleep paralysis and Christina suffers from it a lot, it's never benevolent. No, it's always terrifying. So that's what they mention. Yeah. But it's possible that something psychologically like that, like that is what's causing the feeling of a presence. But yes, mm -hmm. most of the stories, if not all of the stories I've heard about sleep paralysis are horrifying. Whereas this feeling of a presence is nothing, if not just kind and wonderful and helpful. Right. Many people believe that it's just some sort of hallucination brought on as a result of high stress. But according to Geiger, quote, it's not a hallucination in the sense that hallucinations are disordering. This is a very helpful and orderly guide, end quote. Mm -hmm. Another theory suggests the third man is just a type of coping mechanism, a mental process that calms and separates the person from what they are experiencing. So just like the body has a biochemical response to stress and releases adrenaline, it's possible that this is a psychological response that helps us survive. Dr. Lisa Johnson, a clinical psychologist in Sydney, says it's possible that the psyche could rise to the occasion and fulfill a need for external assistance. Because imagery is emotionally more powerful than language, instead of talking to ourselves during a period of high stress, our brain tricks us into feeling and hearing an external presence instead because that is more likely to help us survive. Other psychologists believe it may be an example of bicameralism, which is a controversial hypothesis in psychology and neuroscience, which argues that the human mind once operated in a state in which cognitive functions were divided between one part of the brain, which appears to be speaking, and a second part, which listens and obeys. In this theory, it's believed that under stress, the usually dominant left hemisphere loses some hold over the mind, 
logical thinking declines, and the right brain involved in imaginative thinking intrudes. Despite all of these theories, though, there is still no concrete scientific explanation for third man syndrome. Regardless of the reason, Geiger said, quote, it's an astonishing capacity, and it sort of hints at this idea that as human beings, we are never truly alone, that we have this ability to call upon this resource when we most need it in our lives, end quote. So whether you believe it's just an innate survival mechanism or some sort of guardian angel is up to you. And that is the third man syndrome. I love everything about that. My grandfather definitely had a situation like that. Really? Yes. Many years ago when he was still alive, he had gotten prostate cancer and the radiation or whatever he was on like would kind of gave him like anemia, which gave him like fainting spells. Okay. But the first time it happened, he was in a church. He was, in, he was leaving church and he was in the parking lot. And he said that he f- went black and he like f- f- uh, felt himself falling and that he heard a man say, like he felt a presence and he heard a man say, fear not for God is with you. And when he came to like that person wasn't there. Like he knew everyone else there because he was also like him and my grandmother are like really active in the church. They know every fucking person. Yeah. And he was like looking for this person who said this. And like everyone was like, we don't know who you're talking about. Chills. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. Yeah. I love that story so much. That was wonderful. I'm so fucking fascinated by this. Like if it's fucking some sort of supernatural, spiritual being, whatever, that's cool. But also, I just think it's fucking fascinating if that's how your brain can cope with a survival situation by, like, tricking you into thinking there's someone else. Like, I'm totally down. And, like, you obviously are too stressed to handle this. I'm just going to make you think there's somebody else and use all of the knowledge that's already in your brain to get you out of this. Yeah, like, I'm I'm down with every explanation for this. Yes, So this is one of those where, like, I don't know if it fully qualifies as a paranormal story. It totally does. I've decided it does. It's wonderful. But I'm keeping it. I don't care. I was so fascinated, and I, like, am so obsessed with all of these stories. I love everything about it. That's wonderful. Thank you. I'm glad. I knew you would. I knew you would be as equally fascinated as I am by this. And I'm really glad you did it because uh, my story is is pretty awful. (laughs) Realistically. (laughs) Yes. Traumatize me, Monique. So I, I do like this this balance of like loveliness that it's just... We try, we try to keep it... Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a well-balanced podcast for you. There you go. You know, there you go. We're just covering all the bases. No pun because uh, I'm definitely doing a sports story. Hey! Ayo. Yeah. Just going to jump right into it. Go Wikipedia.com. Sports. Sport. Yeah. <laughs> jump right. Go sports. Uh, I don't know why I keep doing this. Because I don't know sports, as you are very well aware. But this is a sport that I know the most of, which is saying nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I know slightly more than nothing. Because exactly. that's, yes. Just a couple, a couple things more. That's where I'm at. You know, girl. So we're going to jump right into sources. Wikipedia.com, medium.com, si.com, which is Sports Illustrated, findagrave.com, and sa br.org, which is the Society for American Baseball Research, because that's what we're doing, kids. Martin Bergen was born on October 25th, 1871 in North Brookfield, just 55 miles south of Boston. 
His parents, Michael and Anne, were Irish immigrants who settled in the U.S. just after the Civil War, which fucking yikes. Can't imagine the U.S. was a great place to be right after the Civil War. Definitely not. Martin was the third of six children, all girls except for him and the youngest, Bill. And it was around this time that baseball was becoming recognized as the national sport of the United States. And Marty and his younger brother were obsessed. The siblings practiced endlessly, both as catchers, and even played on Father James Tweet's team of altar boys. And when, which apparently, I guess, is like an altar boy league. Okay. But sure. <laughs> and when Marty was just a teenager, he began playing baseball for a local team, the Brookfields. In 1892, when Bergen was just 20, he went pro and served as a catcher for the Salem Witches of the New England League. Okay. No, it doesn't exist anymore because we can't have anything fun. But I absolutely checked. I was like, what the fuck? This sounds amazing. I would have totally gotten into sports if there was a team called the Salem Witches. I'd be like, yes, that's my fucking team. Let's do this. 10,000%. Marty played 59 games for them, batting 247. But Marty was known to have temper tantrums. Before his first year with the Witches was up, Bergen had gotten into it with a teammate over what the Sporting News described as an, quote, imaginary grievance, end quote, of Bergen's, and gave the player, quote, a bad beating, end quote, which I'm like, did he really beat the shit out of him? Or was it like, like he beat him in a game? Like, because I, I hope he didn't like beat the shit out of his teammate over something he just decided. I would hope that. I don't, I don't know. It's like a lot of pent-up aggression in sports. We're in the, like, 1890s right now, so, like... This probably means a physical beating, then, let's be honest. That's what because, I think, yeah. <laughs> realistically. People are wild. Marty's beef wasn't specific to this teammate. Marty also fought with other teammates that year over what they, too, maintained were imagined offenses on the part of Bergen. Even as a kid, on father to its team of altar boys, he had periodic outbursts, throwing down his gear and storming off the field if another player earned more applause than him. The following year was when Marty started to draw attention as a catcher, and he got offers from several other teams around New England. In July of that year, Marty married Hattie Gaines, a stitcher for the Bachelor Shoe Factory in North Brookfield. In 1894, he landed a position on a team in Lewiston, Maine, where he had a batting average of 321 over 97 games and really shined as a catcher. His teammate Jack Sherritt later told the Worcester Evening Gazette that Bergen was, quote, a phenomenal ball player, end quote, but, quote, so cranky that hardly anyone could get along with him, and it was only by the greatest diplomacy that he was gotten along with at all, end quote. But he rocked it so hard as a catcher in Maine that he was signed to the Kansas City Blues, which was part of the highly competitive Western League, and Bergen excelled. After a 9-7 victory over Indianapolis in late July 1895, the Kansas City Star wrote, quote, Bergen caught an excellent game yesterday and kept the visitors anchored to the bases all through the contest, end quote. In addition to being a gifted catcher, Marty was leading his team with a 407 average, which even I know is like fucking amazing to have a 407 average, which means like four times out of fucking 10, you're hitting the fucking ball, which holy fuck. The star reported that, quote, he is one of the cleanest hitters that ever played in Kansas City, end quote. It became quickly apparent that Marty was on another level and that he belonged in the National League, the only major league in existence at the time. Despite all the good things going on in his life, 
Marty continued to have mood swings. It didn't help things that Hattie and Marty were in a long-distance relationship. Marty had urged her to join him in Kansas City, but Hattie had chosen to stay with her family in upstate New York during the season. Living in a distant town without his wife left Marty more unsettled than ever, and his erratic behavior enraged manager Jimmy Manning. By the end of the 1895 season, during one of his fits, Marty left the team over perceived slight and went home to Massachusetts, never to return to Kansas City again. Thing is, in Marty's final season with the Blues, he ended up batting 372 with 188 hits and 118 runs scored in 113 games. So he wasn't out of the game for long. And by season's end, the desperately needy Bostons came calling for him. They had lost their star catcher, Charlie Bennett, in January 1894. While Bennett was leaving Wellsville, Kansas on a hunting trip, Bennett was running to catch a moving train when he lost his grip, slipped, and fell under the wheels, losing both of his legs. No. Girl. Oh, my God. First of all, the wave of chills that specifically went through my legs when you said that. I can't. I cannot. What a time to be alive. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. Oh, Oh God. What if, and like to be like a star catcher and then be like, oh, your life and your career is completely fucked because you like slipped getting on a train. That's so, I, uh, I would rather the train take me, I think. That's awful. That's so awful. And it was just like all of the things that I read, it was just thrown in in one of the articles. And I was like, excuse me, fucking what? <laughs> We're just going to gloss over this? <laughs> Holy fuck. Like kind of a big deal, guys. Yeah. Girl. Boston manager Frank Selly sent his best pitcher and future Hall of Famer Kid Nichols to Kansas City to scout Bergen. The Bostons gave the Blues $1,000, and the earliest the inflation calculator goes is 1913. So still, you know, this is 1894. So, you know, it's not going to be completely accurate. But the equivalent of $1,000 in 1913 is almost 31000 in today's money. And granted, like that may not seem a lot for sports, but there used to be a cap on how much you could spend and pay and players and stuff in sports. So, yeah. <laughs> I liked that little dig. Yeah. <laughs> you know, take that however you want to take it. So the Bostons gave the Blues $1,000 and shortstop Frank Cunnington for Marty Bergen. But the catcher, who in addition to his mood swings, was starting to experience bouts of paranoia, saw the trade as a conspiracy against him. It was so severe that the Boston manager himself had to travel to North Brookfield to assure Marty that he would be used properly and to placate him regarding his salary complaints. In those days, the National League had a salary cap of $2,400, or just over $74,000 today, per player, and Bergen wanted top dollar. It would take two seasons for Marty to stop earning the maximum salary, as he was out of most of the 96th season to an injury but he really began to blossom as a defensive catcher during the 1897 season. Some of his plays became legendary. In one game in Washington that year, he threw out seven runners trying to steal second base. Damn. Okay. Yeah, this guy's not fucking around. William Fitzpatrick, a former New England League umpire and cousin of Marty, said, quote, Bergen did throwing the like of which had never been seen in that city. End quote. The Bostons were gunning for their fourth pennant in seven years, and Marty had established himself as a respected and crucial member of one of the greatest baseball teams of the 19th century. Four of his teammates would later go on to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
And initially, Marty fit right in with his excellent style of play. One of the premier umpires of the time, John Gaffney, said of Marty, quote, No man could catch more gracefully or do more with less apparent exertion than Bergen. Every move he made counted. He and Dick Buckley were the only two players I've ever seen who could throw to bases without moving their feet. That was one of Martin's strongest points. It worked havoc with base runners, end quote. And as a result, Marty was a fan favorite, with spectators coming in droves to see Marty play. While Bergen only hit 248 in his second year in the majors, playing 87 games, he came back in 98 to have his best season, hitting 289 over 120 games and earning his reputation as the best field catcher in all of American baseball. And when I say all of American baseball, I don't mean like just like that season. I mean in the sport up until that time. Holy fuck. Okay. Yeah. That year, the Bostons beat the Baltimores for the 1898 National League title. Marty bought a 60-acre farm two miles outside of North Brookfield. And for Christmas, the club sent him a present fit for a young gentleman farmer with a family. Two horses, a carriage sleigh, harness, and oddly, a piano? Okay. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things does not belong, but sure, I'll take a piano. Despite the fact that everything was coming up Millhouse, Marty, unfortunately, also grew increasingly hostile and unbalanced and, according to the Boston Morning Journal, quote, assaulted several of the most inoffensive members of the team while in the West, end quote. His wild-ass behavior reached ahead on July 28th when Bergen was having breakfast in the fancy dining room of the Southern Hotel in St. Louis. The night before, while on the train with the team, pitcher Vic Willis and other players had been joking around with one another, and initially, Marty joined in. Then, all of a sudden, Bergen grew morose and refused to participate any longer. He ripped Willis a new one, but no one really paid any mind to it, as this was kind of par for the course for Marty at this point, as he was known to relapse into one of his quote-unquote spells, as they were often referred to, where he wouldn't talk to anyone, and he wouldn't want anyone to talk to him. So the following morning, Willis came down to breakfast and was escorted by the head waiter to a seat next to Bergen. Willis was a 6'2", 22-year-old rookie who was on his way to winning 25 games that season. And because Willis wasn't raised in a barn, he greeted Marty upon sitting down next to him. But Marty was not here for it. And he told the pitcher, quote, if you don't get away from me, I'll smash you for sure, end quote. Willis refused to switch seats and basically sure jammed Bergen, to which Marty responded by reaching over and slapping Willis across the face. Wait, gross overreaction. Totally. Oh. Yes. And Willis was rightfully ready to throw down, but his teammates urged him to sit at another table. Way to not have my back, guys. Fuck off. Dude, I know. I know. This dude just hit me. Girl, like slap me across the face. Because I wouldn't move seats like a child. Okay. Dude. The club manager also ordered the 22-year-old to not retaliate, to which Willis responded, quote, I'll make a sacrifice of my personal feelings and swallow the insult in the interests of the club. But if Bergen makes another break at me, we'll settle the question of which is the better man. End quote. Which, I mean, I totally have no problem with this because I'd be like, someone slap me across the face for sitting down next to him. Like, shit's, shit's going to get wild. You know what I mean? Yeah. Bergen, for his part, refused to apologize, claiming he was made the butt of jokes on the train. But Sally... The manager was over it and threatened that if he started more shit to 
just say the word and he would be traded. While Marty said that he wanted to stay on the team, he said that he would not be made a fool of. He also threatened to club his teammates to death at the end of the year. Yo! Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's real bad. Which, like, they have baseball bats everywhere. Like, this is a real possibility. Yeah. Exactly. What the fuck? A fellow teammate anonymously told the news, quote, There is no boycott on Bergen, but there is nothing cordial in our relations with him, and he so understands. He has made trouble with a good many of the boys, and we just give him a wide berth. But he's a ball player, and once we get into the game, personal feelings are set aside in admiration of the artist, for such he is. End quote. Word of the Southern Hotel incident had been kept out of the papers at Sally's request during the season. When the sporting news finally broke the incident in mid-October, Boston had already won the pennant, so the story didn't force the team to trade Bergen. And again, Marty Bergen is the best catcher in the history of the game at this point. As future Hall of Famer Jesse Burkett put it, he said, quote, As a catcher, Martin Bergen was the best the world ever produced. No man acted with more natural grace as a ball player. There was a finish in every move he made. His eye was always true and his movements so quick and accurate in throwing that the speediest base runners never took chances when Bergen was behind the bat, end quote. So yeah, there's no way he's being traded. And while his teammates kind of had no choice but to turn a blind eye to his wild behavior while they were winning pennants in 97 and 98, by the summer of 1899, the team was struggling and they basically collectively despised Marty. And things only got worse from there. In April of that year, Marty's four-year-old son and favorite child, Willie, had died of diphtheria while the team was on the road. And if that wasn't devastating enough to lose a child, Marty wasn't able to make it back in time for his son's funeral. Oh, no. Yeah, it's it's terrible. That's so sad. Kind of fucked up that he admitted he had a favorite child, though, right? I mean, yeah. Realistically... You don't know this because you're you're an only child. Everyone always does. Everyone always does. They don't say it. I know exactly who my mother's favorite child is. It's not me. Spoiler. I'm like a distant last. <laughs> oh, I'm aware. <laughs> I, like everyone who knows me is aware. <laughs> everyone has a favorite child. Everyone does. <laughs> like, I don't buy this bullshit of like, I love all my children equally. That's horse shit. I actually, despite being an only child, did, did also know this. Yes, it's it's yeah. the Miss America answer of like, I just want world peace. Like, get the fuck out of here. This is bullshit. Every parent has a favorite child. Yes. But Marty later told neighbors, quote, it's pretty tough that my boy should be taken away, but it seems a great deal harder still to think that I should get home in time to see him being taken out of the door in a box, end quote. <sighs> That's terrible. It's only going to get worse. Yeah, we're halfway through. It's gonna get it's gonna get real bad. Yay! Yay! With the true crime portion. <laughs> Sodden and manager Frank Selly granted him time off until he felt recovered enough to rejoin the team. And Bergen was back with the club after two weeks, which doesn't seem great. It's not enough time. Yeah. It's not enough time. You know, just my opinion. Though his teammates tried to welcome him back, Bergen continued to clash with them imagining that they were making jokes behind his back about the death of his son. Yo. Well, that's, he's imagining this. But who would do that? Yeah, who would do that? No. It, yeah, he's like really paranoid and like. Why would you imagine that anyone would say that? No one would say that. That's such a fucked up thing to joke about. <sighs> we'll get into it. 
the star catcher became increasingly depressed, erratic, and paranoid. Later that spring, in front of the Burnett House Hotel in Cincinnati, Marty broke down and cried like a baby after sharing his paranoid delusions with a reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, and later begged him through his manager that he not write down what he said, to which the reporter generously obliged. Frank Killen, the Boston pitcher, was listening as Bergen spoke with the reporter and asked Selly what was up with Marty. Selly replied to the pitcher, quote, He is insane. I've done everything in my power to get along with him. He's possessed of the insane idea that none of us like him. I will have to get rid of him. He is the greatest catcher in the business, but there is no use trying to keep him on the team. End quote. Holy fuck. Yeah. Next level. And here's the thing. I definitely think everyone hates me all of the time and no one likes me. (laughs) Stop it. That's not true. That's not true. No, it's not. And like, I understand that intellectually, but like realistically every week, I'm like, this is the week that Amy's like, I hate doing this. I've done this to be nice to you for almost three years, which makes no fucking sense. I'm really not that nice. (laughs) I, I actually know that. I do know that. But this is like the baseline is like everyone hates me all of the time. And no one enjoys my company and think people are just doing things to be nice. Oh my God. You're so delightful. <laughs> Even though it's wildly inconvenient to them to be quote unquote nice. So I understand that, but I don't like start shit with people. Thinking that, no. Because I decided that they don't like me. It's just something I, I privately struggle with. <laughs> well, you're delightful and I don't know anyone who hates you. That's ridiculous. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. I definitely know people who like, ver- like who, like you can fact check that they do, but I, I intellectually know you're not one of them. Yes. It's just a little voice. That's like, today's the day. No. Today's the day. Amy's going to be like, this is bullshit. No. <laughs> and I don't want to be friends with these people who hate you. Well, no, I'm not friends with them either. Oh. You know, I might be related to them, but I'm not friends with them. <laughs> Burn. Oh shit. Oh shit. Um, get deep. On July 20th, 1899, Bergen fucked off and quietly walked off the team's train while they were on their way to a game. Damn. Okay. Yeah, girl. And returned home to North Brookfield for a couple of weeks in the middle of a pennant race, leaving the Bostons with just a backup catcher because he believed that his teammates were plotting to kill him. Wow. Yeah, it's really bad. It's real bad. This is very intense. Okay. Yeah, it's very intense. When taking passenger trains for on-the-road games— he sat with his feet in the aisle so that he could see his assassins approaching from either side. Like, it's it's real bad. Yeah. Boston Globe reporter Tim Murnane, a former player who had become the most respected of the nation's baseball writers at the time, traveled to North Brookfield to convince Bergen to come back to the team. But the catcher complained that his teammates were mistreating him and that the team's managers would not give him time off to be with his family. He said his catching days were done, his nerves were shattered and he needed rest and that he was battling injuries that could only be dealt with by his local physician, Dr. Louis Dion. The movie just hit me from like fucking 30 minutes ago, Monique. I Girl, give it to me. Give it to me. Uh, vertical Limit. You never saw that? No. <gasps> Girl, they like fall down a hole in the ice and no one knows where the fuck they are because like a bunch of snow covered it. So somebody dies while they're down there and they cut out their heart and put it on a stick and shove it up through the ice. And so the heart explodes and blood goes everywhere and rescuers can find them. This movie traumatized me. That is also how I found out that if you inject an air bubble into someone's veins, it will eventually kill them. Girl, 
Horrifying. I also remembered that I put a lean cuisine in the microwave like four hours ago and totally forgot about it. <laughs> I'm obsessed with you. My ADD is off the charts, girl. I'm obsessed with you and I love you so much. I love you. Thank you for letting me interrupt with that. Continue. It was necessary. Uh, I'm traumatized just hearing that fucking story. So fucked up. And I hope it's a good link cuisine. Just saying. It's a good treat after this. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. Marty knows that something isn't right with him, and he's actively seeking help. He goes to his personal physician, Luis Dion, who prescribes the catcher bromides, which is a sedative that was prescribed at the time to treat nervous exhaustion. However, Marty refused to take any of them because he decided that the National League had sent someone to poison him. He later told his doctor, quote, I thought someone in the National League had found out that you were my family physician and had arranged to give me some poison. I did not take it from my wife because I didn't wish hers to be the hand that poisoned me, end quote. So it's like the paranoia is like really bad and and really just escalating. Two weeks later, Marty rejoined the team receiving boisterous cheers from the fans. Bergen's return to Boston on August 4th unexpectedly ended up being the crowning moment of his career. Against the Washingtons, Bergen caught all three runners who tried to steal on him. The fans gave him an ovation every time he came to bat. In the ninth inning, with two out, the Bostons were down 3-2 to two and had men on second and third base. Marty was at bat and made a hit that scored both runners and ended up winning the game. Fans jumped the barricade at South End Grounds to shake Bergen's hand and pat him on the back. Murnane wrote, quote, After the game, Bergen was a mark for the crowd, who cheered him until he went out of sight, end quote. But apparently the cheering at the games had slowly been driving Marty to a state of heightened agitation. After he returned to the team in August, he played less and less games. Marty smoked heavily and chewed tobacco at every game, which I would imagine didn't help out with his stress. And Dr. Dion diagnosed Bergen with tobacco heart. The fuck? Which, girl. <laughs> That's such an old-timey sounding disease. Like what? Literally. What My next line, which is old-timey speak for frayed nerves due to excessive n- use of nicotine. Uh, to be alive in the late 19th century. I got the tobacco heart. I got that tobacco heart's acting up. Ugh. Girl. In September, Bergen went AWOL again then showed up unannounced a few days later, just minutes before a game, put on his catching gear without speaking to anyone. As the season drew to a close and the Bostons lost the pennant, Marty's mental condition deteriorated. On August 9th, Bergen had to be removed from a game when he dodged pitches instead of catching them, claiming that he had been preoccupied with avoiding knife thrusts from an invisible assailant. Selly removed him from the game and the headline in the Boston Globe the following morning read, quote, Bergen makes a farce of his position, end quote. Marty sought remedies from doctors, and the devout Catholic even tried to have a priest party in this joint and hit up three priests for advice on how to help. His erotic behavior inspired so much fear among his mates that Boston club president Arthur Sodden told his players to be cheerful around Bergen. Sodden had warned Sally that Bergen was dangerous and he was afraid that he might shoot someone. His teammates also believed that Marty was growing more and more detached from reality. While they thought that this eccentric behavior may have been the result of hitting the sauce too hard, Marty didn't drink. When his teammates would go out to bars, Marty stayed in his room and read. When the team played home games, instead of staying in a hotel in Boston, 
Marty commuted by train from home in North Brookfield. While all of his coworkers were afraid that Marty was going to snap and leave carnage in his wake, the catcher's wife, Hattie, told his physician, Dr. Dion, that she wasn't afraid of Marty, nor did she fear for the well-being of their two children, Florence and Joe. However, throughout 1899, stresses mounted for Marty both on and off the field. The crowds at the games seemed to grow louder and closer around Marty, sending his paranoia and agitation into a tailspin. Hattie became ill with tuberculosis, and his paranoid fantasies became more self-fulfilling. After the slapping incident in St. Louis, his teammates steered clear of the disturbed star catcher and were no longer being cordial. After his son Willie died in April, Marty believed that the other players were making light of the boy's death and joking about it behind his back. However, there is no evidence to support that assumption. The day after the season ended, Marty's brother William called Dr. Dion, who rode out to the farm to find his patient frantically pacing in front of the house. Dion asked him what was wrong, and Bergen said, quote, Dr. My head is spinning. I have lots of strange ideas, end quote. When Dion asked him to elaborate, Marty said, quote, I have an idea that someone is trying to injure me. I don't know what I'm doing. I played ball all last summer, and people tell me I did fine, but I can't remember hardly any of it. In fact, I don't remember hardly anything about the last game. I played it in a trance, except that when it was all over, a man caught up to me and said, Martin, you played great. And he gave me a cigar, but I was afraid to smoke it. It was a big cigar, and it looked to me like poison. I thought this man had been told to kill me, end quote. Dion mixed a bromide for his disturbed patient, but Marty was reluctant to take it when Hattie poured it. On Sunday, January 14th, Marty visited Dion's office to pick up medicine for Hattie. Dion asked Marty how he had been feeling, and he said that he had visited a doctor in Kansas City during the summer. Testing Marty's memory, the doctor asked him what route he had taken to get there, but Marty couldn't recall. While he did remember playing baseball in St. Joseph, Missouri, Marty admitted that that was the only thing he remembered of that trip. Four days later, on Thursday, January 18th, Marty Bergen got up early and helped his father with chores around the farm and cooked breakfast for his family. He ordered $25 worth of groceries from Boston the day before, but he had no sleigh with which to pick them up from town. So he stopped at his neighbor, Mrs. Daniel Collins's farm, with both kids and a horse in tow, and asked if he could borrow hers. He was bubbly and friendly because, like the fans in the stands, the townsfolk around North Bergen never saw a moody, erratic, paranoid side of Marty. She loaned him her sleigh, to which he hitched his horse and headed to town while leaving his children in the care of Mrs. Collins. The papers had been abuzz with talk of a trade involving Bergen, so while in town, one man asked the star catcher if he was going to be playing ball, to which Marty sadly replied, quote, no, I'll never play another game of ball, end quote. Marty drove back to Mrs. Collins' place, where he picked up Florence and Joe and returned to the farm without his groceries, which had not yet arrived. Marty's father, Michael, was supposed to move into the family farm that night, but when he came a knockin', Hattie refused to let him in. Michael and Marty weren't really getting along at this point with Michael's drinking being a major source of contention for his son. So Michael and Hattie got into it, and it escalated to the point where Hattie hid Marty's shotgun under the sheets of their bed, the same room where their two children slept, which I don't think that's the best hiding place. That doesn't seem wise, yeah. Oh, I don't think so. After a back and forth, Michael eventually left and went to sleep out in the barn while the family went to bed in the main house. Early the following morning, 
On Friday, January 19th, 1900, Marty woke up from the couch where he'd been sleeping and made his way in the darkness to the kitchen stove to build a fire. He lifted the oven lids and scooped out the previous day's ashes. Then he gathered old papers and laid them on the grate. He went to the woodshed, possibly looking for something to break up some wood for a fire, and in the corner was a heavy woodsman's axe. Bergen picked it up, went back into the kitchen, and into the bedroom. No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, Monique, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to get real bad. Oh. Hattie saw him coming towards her with an axe. She got up and raised her hands to protect herself. And wielding the weapon with a batter's practice force. Oh, that detail. Oh. Yep. Oh. Oh. I stole that line. I didn't come up with that. I stole that line. Oh. Because it's very accurate. Oh, that was so visceral, though. Marty Bergen, the finest catcher in the game of baseball, a gentle church-going man, attentive husband, and doting father of two, brought down the axe on the left side of his wife's head, crushing her forehead and killing her instantly. She fell on the bed with her arms still raised above her head. Florence and Joe, still in their nightclothes, mind you, were in the room when their father killed their mother and ran screaming out of the bedroom. And something truly out of a horror movie, Marty chased after his terrified children, swinging his axe while he ran. He caught Joe with a blade at the top of his head, severing the crown of his skull. Marty then picked up his son's body outside of the bedroom door and threw it to the bedroom floor. Joe was just three years old. Oh, oh the chills. No. I, t- I told you it was real bad. I'm really glad you did that story because this is terrible. It's so bad, Monique. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah, it's going to get worse. Sorry. Oh. Florence had hidden behind a kitchen chair, but Bergen saw her and went after her. He swung his axe but missed her, hitting the wooden chair instead. But Marty eventually caught up to Florence, striking her with a blow to the head in the front of the stove. She was six years old. Surrounded by his dead family, Marty Bergen took his straight razor off the kitchen shelf, stood before the looking glass above the sink, and slit his throat. And he did so with such force that he nearly decapitated himself. My jaws on the floor. Girl. Oh my God. I fucking know. This is literally a scene out of a horror movie. Like It literally is. I'm going to have nightmares from this. I'm sorry. No. I love you. fine. I love you. This was so horrifying. It's real bad. Fuck, dude. The razor fell on a table by the sink, and Marty died next to his daughter on the kitchen floor. He was 28 years old. Later that morning, Michael, Marty's father, got up from the barn and went to the main house for breakfast. He tried the front door, but it was locked. The curtains were drawn, and the usually bustling house was unusually quiet, as he heard no movement inside. He went to Mrs. Collins's place and told her everything, and her advice to him was that he, quote, go back and milk the cows and try to get into the house, end quote. Which, sure. Okay. Okay. Oh, I don't want to be the person who has to discover this. See, Girl, this is, oh my God, no. And at this point, it's probably around like six hours that they've been like this. Around noon, Michael managed to let himself through the shed. And that's when he saw the carnage by the stove. 
The farm was soon overrun with hundreds of people, some of them riding in a horse-drawn taxi from town, who had gathered around the Bergen house to ghoulishly peer through the windows as doctors, policemen, the coroner, and the undertaker moved around the bodies trying to piece together what had happened. Which, gross. Don't do this. That is gross. I guess there's nothing else to do, but that's really fucked up. Yeah, I mean, but that's like that thing, like, in the last, like, 10 years, there have been all of these articles of, like, why true crime now? And it's like, this is 1900, and this is what the fuck is happening. Yeah. So it's always been a thing. People are morbid. We're, like, drawn to gruesome things for some weird reason. Yeah. For sure. The next day, the four bodies were taken in three hearses to St. Joseph's Church in North Brookfield, where 800 mourners gathered inside to hear the service, and at least another 800 stood outside. Only two baseball players— Connie Mack, an East Brookfield neighbor of the Milwaukee team, and Billy Hamilton, Bergen's roommate on the road, attended the funeral. Bergen's good friend, T.H. Murnane, the writer and former ball player who had visited him at the farm six months earlier and found him standing and smiling with his two children in the barn doorway, sent 28 white flowers, one for each year of Marty Bergen's life, with a background of ferns and a note that said, quote, May these flowers speak a word of charity for Martin Bergen, who has done this insane deed. End quote. The flowers were lying on Bergen's casket as the funeral train wound up the hill to the cemetery. Marty, Hattie, Florence, and Joe were all buried in a single broad grave in St. Joseph's Cemetery. And in something totally trash, the headstone only lists Marty's name. What? Girl, la. That is so fucked and disrespectful. It, yes. It is. Correct. Don't bury me with my murderer and then only put his Why name. Why don't bury me with my murderer and then don't even be like, by the way, these people are buried here too. The people he killed are buried here too. While findagrave.com states that Hattie, Florence, and Joe's names will be added to the headstone at some point in the future, given that they died 123 years ago, I don't know what the fuck everyone's waiting for. Take a weekend, get an engraver, bang it out. While at the time, Martin Bergen's erratic behavior or quote-unquote spells was blamed on tobacco heart, Martin Bergen most likely suffered from schizophrenia with paranoia and a touch of manic depression. Schizophrenia can be marked by delusions such as Bergen's. Dr. Carl Salzman, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, who examined various contemporary accounts of Bergen's behavior, said that the schizophrenic delusions manifest themselves as quote, a belief that something is happening that isn't, and it's usually threatening. Other symptoms are withdrawal, inability to socialize, or fear of socializing, flat or dull feelings, not the usual range of expression of emotion, and difficulty thinking and controlling one's thoughts. It's a brain disease that causes the person to be more vulnerable to the usual stresses of life, end quote. Today, someone like Bergen would be treated with drugs and psychotherapy, but at the turn of the last century, there weren't medications available to treat this illness, and there was no psychotherapy. In those days, people who weren't famous baseball players who exhibited these symptoms were usually just sent to hospitals where they were locked up. The only medicine Bergen seems to have been prescribed were bromides, which were a mild sedative that were commonly used at this time to quiet down anxious people, especially if they had trouble sleeping. The thing is, even if Bergen took the bromides, they were useless against his mental illness. And that is the horrific story of the time that Martin Bergen, the best catcher in the history of baseball up until that point, 
pulled a Delbert Grady and axe murdered his entire family before killing himself. For real? Ugh. What the fuck? That was so dark. Yeah, it was real dark. I can't believe you did that this week on like your toughest work week <laughs> to date. So this is, so, so to, to be fully transparent, this story has been written for two weeks and I was in Martha's Vineyard with this, which is in Massachusetts. And I was like, and I wanted to do a Massachusetts story because I never do. <laughs> I never do. I never coincide a story when I'm traveling. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to do this. I was like looking for shit in Martha's Vineyard and looking for, for some reason, I just wanted to do a family annihilator story. And it was like, oh, this dude from Boston to this. And I was like, oh, well, great. Or not Boston, North Brookfield. So I didn't anticipate it being on my toughest week because I'd written it two weeks ago and then didn't have the time to record it last week because I had four hours to get from one job, go to sleep, and then wake up to get ready for the other job. So yes, it is very dark. And I'm very glad that Amy psychic sistered me and doing something very lovely and light. That is not what I did. Me too. I loved it though. That was fascinating and so, so brutal. So brutal. I also don't understand how it's not more well-known. Yeah. Especially as like far as family annihilators go. For sure. And like this guy was full on fucking famous that even apparently his brother, Willie also went on to be like, not as good of a ball player, but a very like solid ball player. Oh shit. Like professional baseball player. So I don't know. Yeah. I'd never heard of this. And that was traumatizing. Yeah, it was. I may never sleep again, Moni. But that was wonderfully done. (laughs) Thank you for the trauma. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) You know, thank you for... I loved your story so much. I didn't know that that was a known phenomena. Yeah. I just knew it as like angels, guardian angels. I thought it was fascinating. Couldn't get over it. Yeah. I mean, you hear about it all the time. Like there was a, a story we bonded over when we met. Because I had you listen to an episode of My Favorite Murder. And it was a thing, this girl in a plane crash. Yes. With the collarbones. And she like, she said that she heard like being like, get up, don't close your eyes. Like that she would hear things. And that's like part of how she survived. It's very common in people who have survived like crazy fucking (sighs) dangerous situations. I love it. I know. I love that. I just hope if I'm ever in that sort of situation... My third man kicks in. Yeah. Be like, yo, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) You going to get me out of here? What the fuck's going on? Yeah. I loved your story, though. Thank you. So much. It feels weird to say I loved your story because it's so horrifying. And I don't love when people murder their entire families. For sure. But it was was very well done and well-researched. And I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. And thank you guys again so much for being so understanding of our our repeat episode last week. We appreciate you so much. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's bot period Amy. Follow the show on the gram, too. I have a little bit more time, kind of, coming up. So I'll be uh, more active on there. The show is another fucking horror podcast. That's on, on Instagram. And every sixth episode, which is in two weeks, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read your true crazy story. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we love you so much. We're so obsessed with you. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.